Welcome to Essential Conversations. I'm your host, Rebecca Mears, with my co-host, Luca Halex. And before we dive in, I'd like to respectfully acknowledge that we are broadcasting on unceded ancestral territory of the Coast Salish peoples, the Squamish, the Musqueam, the Coquitlam, and the Tsleil-Waututh. Grateful to be here. And today joining us in the studio, we have Angela Himsel. She is an author. She's an author of a memoir called A River Could Be a Tree. And I'm especially excited today to have her on air because Angela grew up in the same cult as I did. And we've both made our journey out of it. We could also call it an extreme religion, (laughs) our alternative religion. Um, And... Angela's book, um, which recently came out, is actually goes into your past and your journey, beginning in the South. And you said seven out of you were the seventh out of eleven children. That's right. Yeah, that's a big family. Exactly. So thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's lovely. So Angela. I'm just getting to know Angela today, which is which is perfect in person. We've had some messages back and forth, but I I just love getting to know someone on air. Um, but we did chat a little on the ride up, and so you'd mentioned that um, um, you have considered yourself to be an author for a long time. That's right. But this right. is your first published work. That's right. So tell us about that, about the publication, about just being an author. Yeah, what does you that know, look like for you? Well, being. A writer is different than being a published author Mm -hmm. because you can certainly sit at home and write, and many, many of us do. Some people don't necessarily want their writing to reach others. I always did. I always felt that I had something to say and I wanted everybody (laughs) else to hear it. (laughs) Um, So it doesn't mean they ever really wanted to, but now I'm happy that it seems to. I actually started this book, I will say, as many writers do, as fiction. Mm. I think a lot of times we don't really feel that our own uh, story is worth telling as is, and so we need to make it fancier or we need to fictionalize it so we don't irritate other people and upset them. And so I did write this actually as fiction. I always loved fiction. I still love fiction, and I plan to write a novel. I'm working on a novel actually now. But um, I wrote it as a novel. It didn't sell. And then I reluctantly wrote it as nonfiction. And that really took um, a long time to write. I actually worked on it for 14 years. People like to say they just worked on it for two years, but I'm telling you they're lying. Um, So I worked on it for a really long time. So I think that the answer is to be an author or to be a writer is to really be in it for the long haul. Right. So it becomes a way a way of being. So you've written. You always had something to say. I did. what, What was one of the first things you can remember? That you had something to say, yeah, and you wanted to get it out there. Um, You know, when I was younger, foolishly, I believed myself to be a poet. I think a lot of people think that I wasn't a good poet, (laughs) and it took me a while to realize that. I wrote bad poetry, and um, I know I did, I did, and. 
I don't know, maybe people might have told me I did, but I probably didn't believe them. But I think that the poetry, I thought, it was all sort of very dramatic, and it was a little over the top, or I was trying to be clever. So I think that what I've learned along the way is what people always tell you, which is to write what you know, in whatever way that is. You don't have to tell the truth, but um, write what kind of comes to you. And um, so I wrote bad poetry. Mm-hmm. I wrote short stories, <laughs> and I did have some published. I actually wrote a short story, I'll tell you, called Benjamin, which was, um, I, I took Lolita and I turned it around. And I oh. had it be about an older woman who has an affair with a young guy, young boy who was 14. And at the time, I didn't really think of it as subversive. I thought of it as completely ridiculous. Like, who would do this? <laughs> and now it turns out that women have been doing that, and uh, they've been getting in trouble. Nabokov, not so much. I know. <laughs> Yeah, I made the mistake of tra- starting to read that book just after I'd finished a whole independent study on um, child abuse. And I was uh, just very unimpressed. Yeah. With, why is this considered to be right. <laughs> an actual relationship? Anyways, right. that's a whole other story. Yeah. yeah, so you that was interesting. So you took something, you flipped it on its head. Correct. Yeah. I thought that I just thought like what if this were a woman who, you know, a thirty something year old woman who was having an affair with a fourteen year old boy? And I thought at the time, this is a long time ago, that was one of my little feminist, not little, it was a feminist foray, let's just say, into the way in which, even in literature, uh, if a male character does something, it's like, oh, he's so naughty. But if a female character does exactly the same thing or uses the same language, then all of a sudden, you know, she's absolutely sick. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Very revealing. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's what you were trying to say. I was definitely trying to say that. I was not trying to condone it in any (laughs) sense of the word. I really was just trying to kind of make that parallel without actually coming right out and hitting the reader over the head. Uh Right. So there's that subversive of let's let's just tell a story and leave it to the reader to realize that we've actually flipped something inside out. And what is it that we've learned about ourselves and what our um, internal thought processes are by suddenly having something flipped on its side. Have you done any of that with this in writing your memoir? Is there any um, of that kind of theme that comes out in this? I think that that theme does come out because I do like to explore the notion of, for example, in the Bible, which was certainly the the most important text of my childhood anyway, that uh, the... What the what the male characters do in the Bible, it's kind of acceptable. You want a hundred, a thousand wives, or however many Solomon wanted. I mean, I don't know of any woman who would want a thousand husbands, quite frankly. But <laughs> a lot of work. It's a lot of work. Um, <laughs> one is a lot of work. But um, I think that so I did. Um, I did address that a tiny bit in in the memoir of men's roles and women's roles. What what men's roles are, what women's roles are, and how if you flip those, um, what that might look like. Mm-hmm. So let's take our de- our readers a little uh-huh. bit more into where this all springs from. Right. So how about you give everybody an introduction into what was this doomsday apocalyptic right. church that we grew up in? Yeah. So the Worldwide Church of God believed that the world was going to come to an end in 1975. When I was growing up, it was 1975. And there was a booklet called 1975 in Prophecy. The world did not come to an end. By the way, when it did come to an end, we were supposed to be raptured to Petra. Uh, in Jordan, 
And um, for a long time, I was worried that I would be on the toilet when Jesus returned, and I would be flying through the air, beer butt, for all the brethren to see. It was one of those nightmares of one's childhood, and even into adulthood. Exactly, and it says Jesus will come. You know, you know not the hour. So I'm like, well, God, I have to be constantly prepared. Um, So that was the doomsday part of it. And then the other thing that I think was one of the big parts of it, aside from that, was the women's roles, men's roles thing. So um, it was because of Eve that she brought sin into the world. And um, the church often said that um, a husband is supposed to be the head of the wife, just as Jesus is the head of the church. I think that was the phrase they used. And so this notion that you always had a male figure over you, whether it was your father or your husband, those were the two options. And when I uh, pushed back against that, as I did in my teen years, because I just didn't understand it, I I remember pushing back against it. and, And my father said, well... God created a role for everything in the universe. Men have their roles. Women have their roles. What would happen if a river thought it could be a tree? And so I, yeah, so I ended up using that um, as a title of my book. And that kind of is one of the, you know, I guess it's one of the the through lines of my life and and, and probably yours too, Rebecca, which is the, the possibility of change, you know, that we don't have to be um, who we were taught to be as women, and I think that's really freeing to to consider that possibility. It's something I still struggle with. It's, <laughs> exactly. it's a con- yeah, it is. It's a, it's a and now it feels like it's an internal rebellion. Uh-huh. And I'm always searching for the edges uh, of where was this influenced by my church? Where was this influenced by my specific family culture? Right. And what is society at large? Because I can find a lot of that. There's a lot of pushback that's happening just in, in society at large, and a lot of, um, I think, the movement now where we're acknowledging um, non-binary mm-hmm. persons right. is is that ultimate pushback against this of we don't want to be defined by these gender roles. Right. And yes, I mean, within WCG, <laughs> WCG stands for Worldwide Church of God, so that's, or we sometimes, as Angela and I, we just call it the church. The church. Because in our... Capital C. Yeah, oh yeah, capital T, capital C, yes. Yeah. The church. And this was the... It's a very, um, it's a phrase that in its casualness shows how very deeply isolationist we were. Right. We, we believed ourselves to be the only ones that were considered by God to be his people. We were chosen. We were chosen. Absolutely. We were special. We were set yes. aside. All of these things were said to us week after week. And everyone else in the world was basically lumped together as not us. Not, mm-hmm. not the church. Pagan. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yep. <laughs> so, yeah, that is fascinating. Now, so now we see the the origin of the title right. of your book. And I, I'm tweeting this out. So anybody who'd right. like to connect in with some of the uh, images or links or things that Angela might refer to, um, we are tweeting things out live, and you can find us at Essential Conv. That's spelled Essence T I A L C O N V. Um, so I just grabbed that little sound bite and I put that Mm -hmm. into a tweet and sent it out. Now, Rebecca has talked to us before about how the the church came came to and some part of the church came to realize that there were 
cult qualities right. to um, how the church had evolved right. and decided that they were going to change that. Mm-hmm. Um, how old were you when that happened and how did that impact your life? So I actually was too old for that. Um, I stayed in, quote, the church mm-hmm. until I was probably about 24. And, at, and that was um, in 19... Uh, when was that? 85, I would say. Mm-hmm. And Herbert Armstrong died, I think, the following year. He was the founder, mm-hmm. Herbert Armstrong. Mm-hmm. He was quite the charismatic leader. Mm-hmm. And after he died, that's when the church sort of splintered and those changes happened. But I had already had enough at that point. I'd had enough before that. But, you know, I was still afraid of being on the toilet when Jesus returned. And mm-hmm. so that, that fear goes a long way. And... Um, I so I missed that uh, so splintering. you chose to get out I did. under your own steam. I did I did I, I I have to say that I think that sometimes choices are made and you're you're not willing to take responsibility for them mm-hmm. you just don't go to church so mm-hmm. I just sort of stopped going to church I was just like I was too tired, I was this, or whatever. And then after a while, all of that builds up, and you realize that you've made a decision. Mm-hmm. But you didn't tell yourself, I'm not going to church. Yeah, it's a, yeah. you did it by degrees. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Did that cause um, ructions within your family? Or were some of your siblings kind of doing the same right. thing? It actually did not cause problems within my family, and I'm really grateful for that because I do know that in some of these cults, extreme religions, and so on, um, it's hard to leave. It looks as if you are rejecting them as opposed to you rejecting a belief. And so I'm the seventh of 11. My older siblings had already uh, pretty much left the church. And um, my youngest, younger sister Liz remained in it for a long time. By the way, you have to remember, we didn't know how bad the church was. There was no internet, and we had been mm. told not to look at the deceptive, quote-unquote, fake news. It was called right. fake news back then. It was considered that if it was critical of the church, then it was clearly inspired by Satan. Yeah, yeah, it's true. It's a right? n- n- nice way to kind of put any any dissenting voices beyond the pale. Right. And I was also landlocked in Indiana. So some of these things were happening in what they called headquarters yeah. in uh, Pasadena, <laughs> California. Headquarters, mm-hmm. by the way, is what they used to call Nazi headquarters. It was, um, I found out. I never thought of that. I oh. found out, actually, when I was researching the book that there was a lot of Nazi terminology. Oh, God. I know. Interesting. Well, I know. We certainly practice racism in the right, church. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. So for those of you just joining us now, um, this, you're joining Essential Conversations with Rebecca and Luca. And today we have in studio with us Angela Hemsel, who is the author of a book called A River Could, uh, a River Could Be a Tree. So we're, we're talking about um, the, the book and, and what's in it and, and what inspired the book in your life, Angela. So right. when did you become a tree instead of a river? That's a very funny question. Um, I, you know, I think that I was on my way to setting down roots outside of the church in my teenage years. What happened was, and I don't know if you remember this, but the church had banned, first, originally you weren't allowed to wear makeup Mm -hmm. as a woman. And then in the quote unquote liberal years in the 1970s, they said it was fine. So then when I was 13, I ran off to 
the local Ben Franklin and I got my stash of mascara and so on. And I was happy. But then they banned makeup again Mm -hmm. when I came home from church. And I really do think that was a turning point when I was 19. And I do think that these things stand for something far more than what they are. I can vouch for that. When they reversed it the the second time mm-hmm. uh, was when I was in uh, grade eight, so about 13 years mm-hmm. old, 12, 13. And that was the second time that makeup was made okay. Of course, I was too young to be right. around for the first time when they when he flip-flopped on this. This was Mr. Armstrong who did this himself. It was dictum from on high, mm-hmm. but it was always told to us as this is God's will. Correct. Yeah, and so when he came out and said makeup was okay, I had just invested 13 years of my life in these were defining characteristics that made me different, and I was never to ever touch this stuff because it was, you know, selling myself short or whatever, you know, like Mm -hmm. the Whore of Babylon, whatever, all these things. Right. And I could not reconcile in my brain that I could be told that this was from God, and then you can change it. Who, right. uh, like that did not of course it doesn't make sense because it doesn't make sense it was right. really revealing of the humanness of this organization but um, I that was the first moment for me when I hit a I hit a wall I hit right. a very big wall and I said you know what that can't be so I'm not going to wear makeup because if it was true then it's still true mm-hmm. that lasted two weeks but right. whatever right. it was still it was still right. up against right. that wall the church's inconsistency was something that I really didn't understand because when you're a child inconsistency is really difficult to grapple with and so it, I thought that I was the one who had the problem I thought that if I understood things better or was a better person, then I would understand the flip-flop of, (laughs) and there were many, many flip-flops, as you know. There was the Pentecost flip-flop. There was many, many things. Mm -hmm. This was okay. It's not okay. And so this notion, though, that God, first of all, only speaks to men, obviously, (laughs) only to Herbert Armstrong, never to a woman, that bugged me. Because I didn't know why he only got to listen to God. Why couldn't I? I was a nice person. But you were also growing up in the throes of uh, the women's liberation movement in in North America. And so you were getting, if not directly from the media, because that was fake news, it was was in the culture. There was definitely... The skirts were getting higher and the people were wearing different makeup and, you know, more women in the workforce. And so things were changing Anyway, things were changing and the church had a hard time with it changing. So they really wanted us to go back to basically Victorian era. Honestly, I really Mm. do think because Herbert Armstrong was born during the Victorian era. And I really believe that he thought this was in his own way. But I don't have to worry about what he believed because that's giving him way too much (laughs) import in my life at this point. (laughs) But I am curious to know. So you you had um, already started your own independent walk. I'm going right. to call it that. By, you know, the church didn't have as much influence on right. you. You were making decisions for yourself. And at some point, you found, you you went over to Israel. Isn't I that did. Right? right. Can you tell us about that? Well, you know, that makeup fatwa really upset me. <laughs> and so I went, I went to the uh, Office of Overseas Studies at Indiana University. I was, yes, at a secular you know, uh, church. I'm sorry. It was shocking, but I didn't have money to go to the the church's college. 
Uh, and also, I think it had just closed for a bit. But anyway, mm-hmm. I went to Indiana University, came home for the weekend, found out that they were trying to take my mascara away from me, and I wasn't <laughs> happy. And I went back to Indiana University, and I was going to go to Germany for wow. a year. I thought that would be great. My ancestral background is German. I spoke German. I thought that would be fun to do. And then I saw this um, brochure for Israel. And they, I, I didn't know anything about Israel at all. I really expected to find, you know, shepherds with their sheep and uh, wearing togas and sandals and things like that. And so I just like that decided to apply to go to Israel because I think that it's very human to think that if you're in a specific place or holding on to a specific artifact, that you are then closer Mm. to those who lived during that time. So people pray at a wall or they touch whatever it is they touch and they feel as if it's bringing them closer. Um, So in my head, I would go to Israel and then I would get the Holy Spirit and figure out all of these laws that I was having a hard time with, but I did not figure out the laws, did not get the Holy mm. Spirit. Quite daunting to not find that. So. But that's very interesting that your motivation, even if it was not fully conscious, was to go, it was still by the essence of what was cultivated in you being growing up in the church, which was oh, a sure. desire to know the truth. For sure. I, I, mm-hmm. I was still Christian. I definitely still believed in my own way. I believed that the church still held the only truth in this world. Mm-hmm. I still did, despite yeah. everything. Um, it was just the men were getting in the way. It was, <laughs> I, I, yeah, I just didn't get it. But again, I think there's always a self-blame, and maybe it's a, mm. it's not just a church thing. Maybe there's a part of it that's a female thing. I don't know. Right. Um, that I sort of said, oh well, I'm the one who can't figure this out. I'm the one who's at who doesn't have enough understanding. But if I go to Israel, then maybe I will. Right. So what did you find there if you didn't find those answers? Well, (laughs) I tell you what I found. I found Jews, which was shocking. (laughs) Didn't know they existed back in southern Indiana. And I I really found a different way of looking at the biblical text. Mm. And that was also really exciting, really scary, really so shocking. Same text, but a completely same different text, take on it. Same different, totally different te- take. And also I was looking at it academically. And I'd never looked at the Bible academically. Mm. I'd never no. taken it apart like you would take apart literature or you would take apart language. And since I wanted to be a writer... I loved the text, but I didn't always agree with the interpretation of it. Right. So now all of a sudden, I was getting all new answers and mm. all new questions. So I was very confused, yeah. <laughs> let's just say. And what did that confusion create for you? You know, I think that confusion, once you get through it, like the confusion, it's 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 good because you're you're knocking on many many doors you know intellectually you're knocking on many many doors so i was confused so i went down that rabbit hole and then i went down another one and i thought that like maybe jewish mysticism would help me clear everything up so i ended up really um exploring a lot of avenues so i'm happy in retrospect i still do that by the way but i'm happy in retrospect that i did but at the time it feels very murky and gray you know, having answers in the church and I think that, you know, society in general, it's very black and white, right, wrong. That gray is a little hard to handle. And so a lot of people avoid it because it's just messy. 
We were all about the black and white. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So how long did you spend in Israel before you came back to the States? I actually was supposed to be there for a year, and I ended up staying for two years. It was great. I had a really good time, I, I will say. And, uh, yeah. How did you know it was time to come home? Oh, I finished my degree. <laughs> I didn't have any money. Yeah. So I finished my uh, bachelor's degree in religious studies at Hebrew University. And then I had to come back and make a living. So I moved back to Indiana for a few months and went to church, still was going to church. And then I moved to New York City and I was still going to church. I was taking the subway out to Queens uh, every Saturday and then once a month and then every six weeks. And then I just sort of gradually petered out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in the meantime, you were making your way in New York. I was. A very different place from Very Indiana. different. Very different place. I mean, the, the anonymity of being able to be who you are and wear mm. as much mascara as you darn well <laughs> please. Clearly, this is the, uh, the theme here today. Um, so being able to do what you want without any judgmental eyes, knowing what you put in your cart at Kmart, you know, mm. um, was really freeing. I did feel both the small town effect as well as the church effect, that there's eyes kind of judging you. And, and again, I think especially as a woman, I'm sure men are judged also, but um, you're really judged as a woman. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm just sitting here thinking that makeup, along with clothing choices, these are our ways of expressing ourselves, of finding who we are in relation to other women, other people in our community. And yet... Both of those things are also, we are judged on them, but it's not usually just about uh, character. It's about morality. Correct. And that was the line that was brought down on us. We don't hear, we wouldn't have heard it that way for men. There was nothing equivalent for men that was being judged about the morality. It was being judged about character, sure, or personality. This is what it shows of you, but it was usually just characteristics. But for us, yeah, if if we wore makeup in whatever way was okay or not okay at that time, we could be judged morally deficient or morally... Pure, right? right? And so there's definitely this this rebellion of, can I just wear what I want to wear and right. just be me instead of right. having conclusions drawn right. about what else I do with my body, what's going on <laughs> in my head? Like, right. hello? Right. It doesn't indicate anything. I mean, it doesn't have to indicate anything. And it indicates different things to different people yeah. in different cultures, obviously. Um, and so, yeah, I felt that I, it, the whole rape culture of you can't wear short dresses otherwise you're asking for it and by short dresses I mean above your knee by the way yeah. and um, you know you have to wear shorts over your knee or right above your <laughs> knee and all of that stuff so it doesn't indicate anything about my moral character right I feel like it's time for a song okay. is there one of them that you feel more drawn to in this moment than, than the other I always feel drawn to Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah okay. why have you picked that as one of your songs for today you know I love Leonard Cohen. He wrote a lot of verses. First of all, he's a really good poet, and I'm not, and I'm jealous. (laughs) But also, he wrote a lot of verses to this uh, song, I've learned. And I'm not sure if all of them are in it. He, um, um, and he also labored at it. It didn't Mm. come overnight. This particular song has a lot in there about um, King David. Mm-hmm. I heard there was a secret chord where yeah. that David played in a please the Lord. And um, there's a lot of biblical allusions in it, which I've always liked. I also find it very amusing that he is, Leonard Cohen was, um, you know, one of the priests. He was from the priestly tribe of, in terms of Jews. Mm-hmm. And 
Christians just love this song. Yeah. <laughs> to me, it's like to me, it's like such a Jewish song, but Christians love it, and I'm happy right. that it bridges both the Christian That's and true. the Jewish world. Awesome, beautiful. We'll take a listen to this, Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah, and we will rejoin Angela Hemsel here in the studio in just a few minutes. Now I've heard there was a secret chord that David played and it pleased the Lord. But you don't really care for music, do you? It goes like this, the fourth, the fifth, the minor fall, the major lift, the
Welcome back to Essential Conversations with Rebecca and Luca and our guest today, Angela Himsel, author of A River Could Be a Tree. And we just listened to Leonard Cohen singing Hallelujah. And we, I was singing along with him because I can't not <laughs> sing along with Leonard Cohen. <laughs> um, I'm curious to hear a little bit more from you, Angela, about when you were in Israel and you were receiving and hearing a completely different perspective right. on scripture, but it was... It's also a cultural rather than just a religious experience there, right. too, when, mm-hmm. when you're in a, in a Jewish community. Mm-hmm. Um, what, and, it, you know, you said it, it, you know, there was some confusion. There was a lot. It sounds also like there was, in the end, you just kind of had to let go of the cognitive dissonance because what else are you going to do? I think that's right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Correct. Um, and I know that the... <laughs> I know the end of the story is you converted to Judaism. <laughs> That's so can right. you tell us more about like how that came about through the perception shift, etc.? I think it, it, it really did start in Israel, obviously, because um, I had one uh, friend from the church. She was married to a Palestinian man and they lived on the West Bank. And I would go up to her on Saturday, actually, and sort of try to have our church um, met on Saturday, by the way, just to make it clear for the Sabbath. And so I would go up there and try to observe the Sabbath in whatever way I could. But then I was also doing things with my Jewish friends. I was having Friday nights, the Sabbath dinner, and I'd gone to Seder's, Passover Seder's and so on. But I wasn't looking. I wasn't shopping around Mm. for a religion. I really, really wasn't. What was happening was my certainty was being questioned. Uh, My certainty, I would say, was, was, I don't know what the right word is. I wasn't as certain anymore. And I'd been holding on to my certainty for such a long time that it was hard to imagine that I wasn't certain anymore. I was certain that the church was right. I just was, wasn't was sure how to get there. Now, I wasn't certain that that the church was right. I wasn't certain that uh, the way that the scriptures were being interpreted. And I also wasn't certain that Jesus was the Messiah. And that was a big game changer. It hadn't, hadn't occurred to me before to question Jesus. To question the church was one thing, but to question the definition, the foundation of Christianity, that was another. Mm -hmm. And so when I started to question whether or not Jesus was Messiah, which was important to me, because if he wasn't, then I don't have to be Christian, right? (laughs) I mean, why why would I bother? Um, So some people, if they're questioning whether or not Jesus is Messiah, then they're going to just, and then they're questioning God, and then they might become agnostic or they might become atheist. But I still really liked the Bible. I liked the spiritual things in there. I liked the philosophical things in there. And I didn't want to let go of that. And so I just felt that I was really trying to hold on to two horses, quite frankly, Mm. ride them both. Like I can intellectually, you know, play around with, with Judaism, but emotionally and spiritually, I could hang on to Christianity. But ultimately, I had to let go mm-hmm. of Christianity. It did not fit my personality any longer. It didn't fit my belief system. I still like Jesus, by the way. It's not like I don't, it's not like, I don't like him, but I had to break up with him. So. <laughs> yeah. And when did you, what, what helped clarify that for you? clarify the Jesus thing? Or even just to get to the point where you realized I need to let this horse go now. You know, I I realized that I, I kept trying to understand, for example, that um, 
that Christianity, you know, supposes itself to be a monotheistic religion. And so I was having a hard time with, with God and with Jesus. That looked mm. like two to me. And I'm pretty good at math, and I just <laughs> couldn't get it. I just didn't get the math. And so, and I never got an explanation that I could really accept. And I also honestly didn't like the notion of child sacrifice, mm. which is what I really viewed Jesus as. I felt that he was a child sacrifice, and that bothered me. I mm-hmm. couldn't really understand you know, a nice God, ch- sacrificing a child. Um, so big things, I guess. Yeah. But really, for me, I think that most of us stay in the faith in which we were raised, whether it's Muslim or Christian or Judaism or whatever. And that's okay. If that works for you, that's totally okay. But I think that when you start questioning the foundation, by the way, there's not, it's not as if there's not stuff in Judaism I don't question either. There's plenty of things in every religion I question. I, so it's not like I accept, well, do you accept the flood? I don't know. I don't know if the flood happened. But um, so I, I guess I felt that I was more comfortable within the Jewish tradition mm-hmm. than I was in uh, Christianity. Mm-hmm. Um, or any other religions, because I did explore other religions at the same time. Right, yeah. And so it gave you space in which to hold questions, it sounds like. Right. Or or to um, be okay with this part and not have to be married to another part. Yes, yeah. I think so. I mean, I think that within Christianity, there's plenty of Christians who... There's many different ways of being Christian, but you would not say, I don't think, that you're Christian if you didn't believe in Jesus. Mm -hmm. I don't think you would. You might be agnostic. You might be many other things. But if you're Jewish, you can say you're Jewish even if you're Jewish because you keep the holidays or because of this or because of that. So I did find more room to move around within Judaism, I suppose. Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. So you said that you originally wrote your book— as fiction. I did. And it didn't sell, and then you went back and you reworked right. it. Right. But it is a memoir. That's right. And so I'm curious about how, uh, how w- what the journey was in terms of what it did for you to write your story as fiction, and then what, f- what it further did to you in your process as a human being Mm -hmm. to write your memoir then as really telling your story and putting your name behind it as this is my story? Great question. Well, I think that writing fiction in general, you become more aware of scene, that there's a there's that you can't just recount something that this happened and then this happened and then that Mm -hmm. happened and I went to church and then I came back and this happened. You really, really have to think about it and synthesize it and pull out the bits and the pieces that are going to, um, to, 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 to demonstrate the story that you're trying to tell. Mm -hmm. So I think that as, as a fiction writer, writing fiction was useful for me to have to, especially when looking at yourself, you kind of have to take a step back. And with fiction, it is a step back. It's not your life. So you are kind of taking a step back. Mm-hmm. But writing it as fiction or writing fiction in general was helpful because I had to bear in mind, oh, there's themes. Oh, let's end this chapter with a bit of a cliffhanger, you know, mm-hmm. or let's make sure that there's dialogue in here. Let's make sure we know who the other characters are because even though it's about me, there are other characters. So I think that as a as a fiction writer, I was 
much more mindful of those things writing the memoir and then in terms of what it did for me writing it with my name behind it um i think that that's been um really liberating in some sense Mm. that um when i wrote it as fiction for example there are 11 kids and I was like oh I can't go into 11 kids so let's how about five kids I'll just make sure that this character has five kids yeah. <laughs> there's five five siblings so I think that writing it as nonfiction meant that I could include even the uncomfortable details uh-huh. and the details that might not have made sense in fiction but I could I could somehow make them make more sense in nonfiction hmm. so I think it helped me also organize my own thoughts uh, and 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 see the trajectory myself well, sometimes. Well, you got a second go-round on it. I did. Right? I did. Um, and a detailed second go-round yeah, on it. Yeah, that's right. right. Um, and, and you said you researched things. I did. I researched and a lot. And you did a lot of research on this, which you, I mean, yes, you research when you write fiction, but right. you would have had to research m- even more rigorously Right. To write nonfiction. Yeah, you know, for example, my mother's family was Catholic. My mother was the oldest of seven, Catholic. My father was the oldest of three, Lutheran. And then when they fell in love in the 50s, this was considered a mixed marriage. Mm -hmm. And then that's when they found the Worldwide Church of God on the radio. And uh, then they ended up in the Worldwide Church of God. So I went back, for example, and I researched the Catholic-Lutheran divide, which was so interesting. And mm-hmm. so, for example, I included a some one of the pieces of research that I included, which is completely not relevant to my story, but was so fun. And it <laughs> was that Martin Luther, when he left the Catholic Church, he uh, helped a nun escape the convent and he, by putting hiding her in a pickle barrel. <laughs> and um, he ended up marrying her. So I just thought wow. that a nun in a pickle barrel was quite worthy of including. I want to see a pub named Pickled Nun. <laughs> yes. I've never heard that before. That's yeah. interesting. Yeah. So that's just a bit of the... But I also did. I, I called family members and I asked them about their recollections and what they believed and how things had happened and that sort of thing. So it was all... Um, it was actually, you know, it was kind of... Um, healing in some way for all of us to talk about it all over again after the fact. And not everybody in the family, extended family, was part of this church. Nobody was. We were totally the minorities. Mm -hmm. So that was the other thing that I wanted to make clear in the memoir because I think a lot of people think, well, everybody was in the church. But my parents, my mother's family was Catholic. My father's family was Lutheran. They were not too happy about this church that my family had joined. And Um, So it was only my family in the entire county, as well as within our own within our own families. Mm, It was very frequent for people to travel multiple hours to get to to a church congregation within our church. Mm -hmm. And yet we were all over the world. Yeah, we were quite a significant presence, even though we flew under the radar, I think, for a lot of people. Um, What I'm hearing, too, is that the process of writing your memoir while it was a very personal story, almost too personal, so you had to start with from fiction, right? <laughs> right. Let's, let's, let's make right. this about somebody else, exactly. something else, that I can right. just get the essence of this out. Yes. And now, okay, now I'm telling it, and I'm telling it about myself, uh, but through doing these, this depth of research, you mm-hmm. were also connecting in with the bigger story, to right. be honest, because this is yep. not just about you. This right. was about... Um, this was about 
a movement, a culture, because there was a culture within our church, right. a community that was way bigger than you, that your parents were just a small, hooked into a small part of. That's right. And yet it dr- dragged all of our lives along a certain parallel path to right. some degrees. And we all popped off at different places yeah. if, if we did pop off or we, we went away in different mm-hmm. streams, the different mm-hmm. splinter groups or what have you. Anybody who's just joining us now, um, what we're referring to is the book A River Could Be a Tree, which is written by our guest today, Angela Himsel. Um, I am tweeting things out if you want to get links to this and uh, see what um, follow this into more detail. Um, we have one more song to play from you. And okay. I think this might, and it's called Both Sides Now. This sounds, this feels like <laughs> so good perfect. time, because yeah, exactly. Right. So this is by Joni Mitchell. Would you like to tell everybody why you chose this song? So uh, unconsciously, I guess I was uh, doing the Leonard Cohen, Joni Mitchell thing, although <laughs> I didn't really realize it at the time. But I love this song, and I've liked it for a long time since I was a child. And I was re-listening to it the other day, just because, and I thought, both sides now, you know, um, there is this duality. There's this and this. There's either or, but this and this. Um, I've looked at life from both sides now, and I think that that's pretty true of many of us. And it's when we start to acknowledge the both sides that we can then find the grays as well right. because they overlap in certain areas. Yes. Right. All right. Let's take a listen to Joni Mitchell, both sides now. We will rejoin Angela Himsel here in the studio in just a few minutes. Rolls and flows of angel hair and ice cream castles in the air And feather cannons everywhere Looked at clouds that way But now they only block the sun They rain and they snow on everyone So many things I would have done But clouds guard in my way I've looked at clouds From both sides now From up and down Still somehow It's cloud illusions I recall I really don't know clouds at all. Moons and Jews and Ferris wheels, the dizzy dancing way that you feel as every Every tale comes real I've looked at love that way But now it's just another show And you leave them laughing when you go And if you care, don't let them know don't give yourself away I've looked 
Welcome back to Essential Conversations with Rebecca and Luca and our guest today, Angela Himsel, author of A River, River Could Be a Tree. We just listened to Joni Mitchell's Both Sides Now, which ended up being a little slower of a version than we were expecting. <laughs> but still, I, I, and I know that song really well, and I didn't realize it was Joni Mitchell. It's so funny, the songs that guests bring on, it's, it's fascinating to Luca and I. Yeah. We get exposed to such a wide variety of music. We learn about new artists, um, but they reveal not only something about the person that they're with, but then they call to us in certain ways. It's just, it's, it's a neat, neat section of our show. Which reminds me, we have um, one of your show and tell items today was a picture of your kids. That's right. Yes. yes. Tell us why that's one of your show and tell items. Oh, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> what else can it be? I mean, I have three kids and um, um, you know, a lot of things are ephemeral in life. Let's hope that the three kids are kind of um, always a part of my life and um, very important to me. 
they they represent a lot. They represent my past, my husband's past, and they also represent the future because I do feel that they they carry down, as do all children, um, their ancestors um, and all of the people who have gone before. And those things have been always been very important to me. Those who have come before us, and um, and then they represent you know those who have come after us. So yeah. And one of them just got married. Yeah, my son just got married. We're very happy about that. We like her a lot. So that's good. It's wonderful. <laughs> that's yeah. always good. It's yeah. always yeah. good. Yeah. <laughs> and you've been doing some touring around that's brought you into our neck of the woods so that that's you right. could be in the studio with us in person today. Right. Um, and part of this, I guess, is because the book was published in in November right. that you're doing your book, your book publicity. Right. Um, but you've also been doing talks. I've been doing talks as part of it, yeah. I've been doing mostly the Jewish book festivals um, and synagogues and, and those sort of things, as well as a couple of other um, sort of non, non, non-Jewish places, more mainstream. And, yeah, I mean, I would hope that it's nice for, for both, you know, Jewish, non-Jewish audiences and that sort of thing. You could show up at some feast or tabernacles <laughs> <laughs> with your book on the yes. table. That was one of our annual, so funny. annual uh, f- um, festivals, in air quotes, exactly. I'm saying right now, from WCG. And, of course, right. it's still celebrated by a lot of the right. splinter groups. That's right. That would be, that would be hilarious. That would be very <laughs> funny. This strikes me as a story that is about anybody who um, is is brought up in a particular system, mm-hmm. any kind of system, so. right. and who comes to doubt it, and it through examination and or or through conflict or whatever, right. and and goes on a personal search. I think so, and I also think that. Um, it's also a bit of a story of an outsider, and mm. I really didn't think about it until as I was writing it. And um, a friend of mine from high school actually read it and told me recently it really resonated with him. And he was Catholic and a guy, and I was like, really, why? And he said he always felt like an outsider. Mm-hmm. And I found it very interesting how many people do feel like an outsider, oh, yeah. whether it's because of your faith or whether it's because of your skin color or your whatever it is. Or your culture, or an immigrant. He, yeah. Right, and he felt like an outsider. And so I think that um, hopefully, you know, if, if people read it there's there's something that's more universal than my story because i don't think my story is the biggest story out there (laughs) but we're so glad that you shared it thank you yeah and what's coming up next for you um i'm continuing my touring i'm home in new york city for a week and then i'm in florida for a week and then i'm back and then there's more (laughs) so uh yeah it's all on my website. You're taking your show on the road. I do, exactly. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, if people want to find you through your website, what is right. your website? It's AngelaHimsel.com. Fantastic. Yeah. That's nice and easy. There it is. Yes, yeah. exactly. Um, uh, and so and all your contact information is on my contact website. I was just going to say, if there's, is there anybody of any kind of background or situation that might be listening right now that you would love to hear from? Anybody who this resonates with, yeah. I mean, I think that there have been people from the Mormon faith as well as from Jehovah's Witnesses who have found this to be kind of, um, found an affinity, former members, I should say, Mm -hmm. found an affinity with this. Yeah. 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 
And as we share our stories, we find those connections. It, it builds community. Right. Um, I think that was something that had popped out of my lips earlier today about they, it's so funny when we've come out of something that we may have felt like outsiders of something that was a community. Right. Somehow we're in it, but we're, at, we're not in it or we right. don't really self-identify with it all the way. I always feel it like it's a precarious belonging. Mm-hmm. And as adults and as we grow and we heal, I feel my personal journey is wanting to create healthy forms of community that really are accepting, really are inclusive, really do witness and and honor the differences and variety that we all have so that the belonging is not based on a set of rules. Right. Well, the belonging isn't based on conforming. Yeah. And I think that with um, the Worldwide Church of God and with many faiths, unfortunately, it is based on conforming and you don't dare show your individuality or your own personality, whatever that happens to be, mm-hmm. um, because there is that fear of judgment or worse, by the way. Mm-hmm. So I think that uh, finding a community in which you don't have to conform to one another is an amazing thing. Yeah. It's a real gift. Well, we've got just one minute left. I'd like to throw in a quick plug. If anybody's listening that uh, comes from um, an extreme religion background and uh, this resonates with you or even specifically from WCG, uh, Angela made a reference earlier in the show to the place of safety. It was like the concept of when the end comes, the safe place where we would all gather. That was a phrase used by our church. That's right. And I've used that phrase to start a group that's meant to be a place for us to create that healthy community, share our stories and talk about things. You can find us on Facebook if you Google the place of safety. Mm-hmm. And please connect in with Angela's website AngelaHemsel.com. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Absolutely lovely. Is there anything you want to tell people about before we go, Luca? Uh, No. Just go read the book. I think you'll find it really interesting. Read the book. book. And until next week. I wonder what's around the corner. (laughs) Essential Conversations is brought to you courtesy of Luca Halleck's Power Sorcerer. And Rebecca Mears, Certified Coach. Increase your awareness, expand your options, empower yourself. Luca can be reached at www.lucahallux.com. I light the fires that light a thousand more. Connect with Rebecca at catchingfire.ca.